Hello listeners, finally on the podcast we are revisiting the era of Tom Baker. So let's enter the fourth dimension as today I discuss my favourite, City of Death. The TARDIS Cloister Bell, imminent disaster. The Cloister Bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. But the TARDIS doesn't have battle no, stations. No, 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 nothing along those lines. The Cloister Bell? Oh, no. So, hello, everyone. I'm Rob, and I'm here with Liam. Hi, Rob. Hi, everyone. Hello. Um, so, yesterday, we're talking about City of Death. And, it, of course, it's one of my favourites. If not the favourite, I don't know. There's a lot of them sat up there on the podium together. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about um, picking a favourite Tom Baker? We don't have to go into what you picked. Was it a hard choice for you? No, it wasn't. Uh, the only reason being is because um, my favourite Tom Baker story happens to be my all-time favourite Doctor Who story. So in that sense, it was it was it was very easy. But you're right because it, it, it's sort of what we were saying when we were reviewing um, our John Pertwee stories. I found that a bit of a. I mean, I, I knew I wanted to pick mine as the Sea Devils, but then prior to us recording that podcast, I was thinking, well, is it? Is it? You know, because there were a lot of strong contenders. You know, you had um, you know Spearhead from Space and Inferno, the Sea Devils, obviously. Your choice, which was Frontier and Space, is is a, is a damn good one as well. Um, and obviously, the, the Tom Baker era remains incredibly popular, um, and Tom Baker still remains. And this is people who weren't around when um, Tom Baker was the Doctor. You know, you were talking about fans many years later who still absolutely adore his era. There's, yeah, and there's there's an awful lot of bloody good stories I mean uh, the story that I picked is in the, the obvious era which is um, the, the Philip Hinchcliffe era when so when Hinchcliffe was producing the show a lot of a lot of people tend to focus that as the, the best um, era of when Tom Baker was the Doctor and there may be some merit in that but to be perfectly honest I'm so pleased you picked one from when Graham Williams was producer because I think his run as producer doesn't get the love and attention than it needs because um, I think maybe season 15 is a bit of a, a hodgepodge of stuff and doesn't quite work but I think the key to time season and the, uh, and season 17 which is where City of Death comes in I think you know I, I really like those I'm very very fond of them well when um, it, it's remained a fan favourite um, I think pretty much since it was broadcast and when Russell T. Davis was attempting to bring the show back. So this was in preparation prior to 2005. One of the stories he... One of the classic Doctor Who stories that he picked as a means to convince the producers, look, this is this is a show worth making, was City of Death. In fact, City of Death tends to get an awful lot of focus in the classic stories that Davis had, had chosen. There was just... They just said there was something very witty and fresh and humorous and clever about the story which after all these years you could still sit and appreciate so it's yeah it's still a story that shines an awful lot yeah do you think it was too, it was trying to be too humorous possibly but i don't mind that in fact because this was the this was the season where douglas adams uh, was script editor 
And as script editor, he really stamps his personality on the show. And for a lot of people, that is one of the reasons why they don't like this particular season. Uh, when it was incredibly popular at the time in terms of viewing figures, um, I mean, but part of that was ITV was on strike, um, and this this falls into when City of Death was broadcast. So there was there was literally nothing else to watch but Doctor Who, uh, unless uh, not sure what else was on BBC Two. But in terms of popular entertainment, City of Death was was it. Um, but nonetheless, it was it was very popular. I really like um, Douglas Adams as a script editor. I mean, the fact that Douglas Adams, who's just this absolutely um, amazing figure, um, script edited Doctor Who and also wrote stories for it, I just think is absolutely incredible in and of itself. But I like his approach of bringing humour into the show because it isn't just bringing humour into the show for for the sake of it it has a, it has an actual reason if you if you look at how it's um how it's written it's it's a means of ridiculing the enemy whoever the enemy happens to be in that story and what douglas adams is saying is having a sense of humor shows you to have a sense of perspective and the fact that the enemies in in this series in this season of doctor who do not have a sense of humor they are there they are figures therefore to be ridiculed I think is, is quite interesting but I like the humor in it itself it's just it's just entertaining and done really well um, Douglas Adams when he was interview, interviewed for the th uh, 30th anniversary documentary um, 30 years in the TARDIS he had said um, he deliberately wrote humor into the show but how it manifested itself wasn't what he had in mind you know people say oh here's a joke now he's the opportunity to do silly voices and silly walks and so on um, really what he wanted was people to play the humor dead straight um, so he knew what he was doing but actually you know sort of like maybe the actors went a bit too far with it but it's it's just entertaining and I like it how about how about you oh I really like it it's a really standard story um, do you think um, do you think a lot of the humor just comes from kind of Tom Baker's own own wit like improvised kind of on the set well some of it is or oh. oh, some of it was embellishing what was was in the script i mean i think the way when we're introduced to the doctor and romana and all that look that dialogue that they have at the top of the eiffel tower you know where they're talking about you know um 1979 is more of a table wine <laughs> it's not it's not it's not the best yet uh which i just think is great and then um should we take the lift or fly? Let's not be ostentatious. Okay, let's fly then. It's just lovely. It's just really nice, delightful dialogue with um, with Lala Ward and Tom Baker just playing it pitch perfect. Some of it was on the script, but they they as actors embellished that dialogue a little bit, so they brought um, some of themselves into it. And this story is is littered with uh, with lots of really wonderful lines um it's it's a very quotable story um but it's not just you know the, the doctor and romana who have this uh, you know it's um you know you have count scarlioni um you know with lines like my dear i don't think he's as stupid as he seems uh which is, the count, is what the countess says and just his reply my dear nobody can be stupid as he seems talking about the doctor 
that's just a lovely line as well and it's you know that that it just seems pitch perfect in terms of describing tom baker's doctor at this point in in, in the show's history it's just great yeah the dialogue's anything but boring no, no, no yeah no definitely not in fact even some of the i mean when you've got uh, professor Kerensky. Kerensky. yeah i mean we, we can maybe um put this in in, in context uh, of the story later on but one line which cracks me up and thinking about it now it would be fantastic i mean i don't know how you would do it but if you were able to um manage to say this just just drop it into her into a normal conversation i just uh, just because of the, the bizarreness of it but it's it's the jaggeroth who need all the chickens is it it's exactly what i was just thinking <laughs> that's a great line and then um because it's not just the line it's it's the cast this this um the, the the cast of this story is just brilliant and you've got um julian glover who plays the count um and just his reaction to, to, to when the professor says that line you know oh, what, what what does he say you know he just laughs and goes <laughs> how an intellect can um live in such a tiny mind but julian glover's just relishing it and he's, he's fantastic you know, and this is his second time in the show because he'd been in. Um, he played. Uh, he, he played the king in the crusade, which is uh, which is the story I picked as my favorite Hartnell story. He'd also yes. he was also in a, a, an episode of, of Blake Seven in the first series, Breakdown. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he's great in that, and of course he's in James Bond. So, and also isn't he, wasn't he in James Bond? Um, wasn't he in Star Wars? And also he's been in Indiana Jones, but was he in Star Wars as well? I wonder if all these characters are Scarif. <laughs> we know there's 12 of them, but we well, haven't seen all 12. That's true. So, actually, it, you know, and they're splintered across all of time. So, yeah. Hmm. So, so he's the king in the crusade. He's in Blake 7. Uh, he's in James Bond. And he's in Indiana Jones. Yeah. Uh, so, that they all tie into yeah. Doctor Who continuity. Uh, we're calling it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And he was a pre-Hartnell doctor, probably. Surely, yeah. <laughs> so, onto the cast and crew, I think. Yep. Of course, Doctor Who, Tom Baker, Romana Lala Ward, Count Julian Glover, Countess Catherine Schell, Duggan, Tom Chadburn, Kerensky, David Graham, Herman, Kevin Flood. Of the crew, uh, written by the notorious David Agnew. <laughs> Script editor Douglas Adams, director Michael Haynes, producer Graham Williams. The whole thing about David Agnew, mm-hmm. my first impression, without knowing more about it, years ago, um, I thought it was simply a pseudonym of Douglas Adams, mm. which isn't the case. It's actually, it's actually been used for other productions, hasn't it, from the BBC. Yes, it did. It, 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 I think you're going to mention this, so I won't steal the light. But uh, it, it had been used as a, for an, a previous Doctor Who story as well. But yeah, it's a, it was a, a BBC pseudonym for to cover the fact that someone in the production team had written a story um, because that wasn't seen as, as as good practice, especially during this time because everything was very heavily unionized in the sense that. You know, um, it could be seen as uh, as unfair that a script editor commissioned themselves to write the story. Um, you know, so yeah, D- David Agnew was it was a pseudonym to to say, you know, to to cover that up basically. 
When you think of Douglas Adams, do you think of, well, of course, Hitchhikers is the central body of work. Hmm. Do you think of City of Death as being um, up there with some of his major pieces that he's uh, contributed to? I think for for a lot of people, and I think I'd include myself in this. When I first when I first think of Douglas Adams, obviously I think of um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because um, that was just a, a, a brilliantly delightful um, idea, sort of blending philosophy and just fantastic humour in in science fiction, and just it continues to delight as a radio show, um, as a, as a TV series, and of course as the books. I'm not too keen on the movie, although I think I might need to reevaluate that. I haven't seen it in a long time, but certainly the uh, I would say the radio show and the book, or the books rather. Come to think of it, I haven't seen the movie in years. I think Martin Freeman once said it was a blessing in disguise that it got cancelled because if he'd been obliged to do this franchise for years, he'd probably still be doing it ten years later, and he wouldn't have went on to all the other stuff. Yeah, no, no, it's, yeah, that's true. And it is a tragedy how um, Douglas Adams died very young. He, um, So yeah, that's the first thing that, that springs to mind. But of course, coming very close is the fact that he scripted Doctor Who. And I, I, obviously because being Doctor Who fans. But I just think it's, it's absolutely amazing that someone of his creativity and intellect and um, through through his love of, of science and technology and his commentary on that. I mean, he didn't just only do um, Hitchhikers, he also did um, um, The Holistic Detective Agency, uh, which is uh, which is also an awful lot of fun. If you haven't read those books, um, go and do it. And in fact, there was a very good BBC adaptation um, done not all that long ago, um, only for one series. It's such a shame because it was, it was damn good. But um, as I said before, Douglas Adams is a script editor. I mean, he he put a stamp on it um, and made a uh, made a tremendous impact. A lot of people feel that um, his approach as a script editor wasn't um, entirely professional. And uh, I mean, um, Stephen Moffat once said that Douglas Adams brought something entirely useless to Doctor Who, which was um, which was we know what it is how a genius would um, script edit a show and there's not that many geniuses around. But the fact that a genius script edited a show is, you know, should be impressive in itself. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's it's remarkable. Um, and as I said, I, I like that approach and, and what he did because I think I... It's not regarded by many as the best pedigree of Doctor Who, but I just love it. You know, I mean, Destiny of the Daleks, I think, is, a fant- you know, is just an absolutely fantastic story. And somehow Douglas Adams managed to blend Terry Nation's storytelling in with his approach as script editor and humour, and it just sort of dovetails really well. Surprisingly, I think that's a great story with a lot of style. Obviously, you, you you've got uh, City of Death, Nightmare of Eden. I am tremendously fond of. I have a huge soft spot for that story. Yeah, I just think it's brilliant. So yeah, so sorry, I'm I'm rambling, but uh, yeah, I would say Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, unsurprisingly, is the first thing that comes to mind, and then just the fact he he, he was responsible for really for, for the along with Graham Williams, of course, but um, just the, the humor and the enjoyment and um, the ideas he relished in with with this season of Doctor Who. So this story is a it's a four parter 
for 25 minute episodes. It was released on the 29th of September until the 20th of October 1979. Right about the time that this podcast's coming out. <laughs> oh yes, it's, it's all planned folks, it's, it's not coincidental at all. <laughs> it's the second serial in season 17 and it takes place directly after Destiny of the Daleks. Um, and it's the first story to be filmed on location outside the UK, I believe. Uh, yes, that's right, yeah. And they do use those locations, don't they? Um, a lot. They don't waste them. <laughs> there's a lot of running in the streets. <laughs> yeah. Put it this way, folks. Uh, there's no mistaking that this story was filmed in Paris. In fact, this story stands apart from a lot of Doctor Who because a lot of it, you see them leave in one room we don't see the journey and they go to another place. Mm-hmm. But with this story, it's, it's all about the travelling. It is, yeah. I mean, it's... Um, I think there's... I mean, I think it's a good story. And I do like... Uh, I do like uh, the script. Um, but there, there isn't... It has to be said, there is there is an awful... Well, not an awful lot, but there is some padding in this story with people, you know, just sort of like Tom Baker and Lana Ward and... Um, uh, Tom Chadburn running up the Champs-Élysées and all the rest of it. It just it doesn't add anything to the story necessarily. Um, but it's just nice. It's, it's very well directed. It just looks nice. I mean, I, I'm perhaps being a bit unfair because um, these moments do... You could say, well, actually, they do aid the urgency that you know um, they're having to get from, from A to B in very quick succession because of, you know, there's this threat. Um... But it's it's just absolutely delightful. You just just wallowing in the location, and there's something about seeing footage of foreign locations in the 70s and the 80s. I don't know what it, I mean. This is just bringing it personally. There's just something about it that I've always really liked, and it, it's like you know when you watch uh, Michael Palin's Around the World in 80 Days, for example, or um, you know, and there's other travel documentaries made around you know, as I said during the 80s. There's something when I, when I see those, because I still enjoy them. Um, the, it's it's the only thing that makes me, which kind of re- regrets that I was born in 87. I was like, oh, I wish I was born a little bit earlier so I could have experienced the world when, you know, um, during that time. Because there's just something about that period I find really quite delightful. Um, you know, b- being able to experience... I don't know what it is. It's a bit difficult to explain, but I just think it's great. And the fact that City of Death uh, becomes a bit of a travel log, seeing Paris in 1979, and some of it's superbly shot. I mean, some of it's. I think there's a shot in. Um, I think it's in episode one, where you know there's a lot of sort of chasing around and so on, and you've got and halfway the shot you've got a um, a postcard stand, and the way it just seems to randomly turn. To then showcase someone walking up the uh, oh, yes. up the street, yeah. I mean, you could say, oh, that's a bit sort of like needlessly arty, um, but somehow it works, and the story gets a, you know, the, and it, it gets away with it. But then, considering that the whole story, well, not the whole story, but a big part of it is to do with art and how one appreciates it. Um, you could, I think, it's quite clear that director Michael Hayes just put that in because it looked nice but if you were to do a thesis on this story maybe you could sort of tie it in that that was a deliberate artistic choice that the director put in to highlight the artistic merit of the story you know anyway so on oh um i did recognize tom chadburn from something 
and um, there's a movie with well it's a movie with uh, Peter Cushion called The Beast Must Die oh okay this story it's it's a bit like a I think it's from the, from the late 70s and it's a, it's a murder mystery involving werewolves and you have to decide who's the werewolf you even get a um, a 30 second break at the end where you have to figure it out um, but one of the characters there is played by Tom Chadburn Ah, right, okay. That sounds like it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I know that uh, he, he was in Casino Royale, the David, uh, the Daniel Craig, uh, James Bond film. Ah, okay. Uh, he played the stockbroker. It's, it's, he's only in one scene, but you know he, he does have dialogue, so he's in that. And again, he was in an episode of Blake 7. Um, I've forgotten the name of it, but it's in the second series. So, should we dive into the story now? Yeah. So... Uh, it's a four-part. Uh, under part one, um, Scaroth is the only hope for saving the Jagaroth, but he's on ancient Earth and his warp field collapses and his ship is destroyed. Um, were the last of the Jagaroth people on his ship? That that's one thing I, I've just just occurred to me. I didn't realise. Where were the Where were the other Jagaroth? That is true. It's 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 it is one moment when. The, the model shot of the spaceship, which is fantastic. Um, and then you cut to Scaroff communicating to people. Over. It doesn't quite marry up. And I've always, I have to admit, I have actually, I have been slightly confused about that. Um, I always assumed that he was going to rescue them from something. Yeah, so now I feel that. It's it's maybe it's obvious and I don't know, but I've always thought that he was in a uh, he was in a control module linked to the ship, and all the Jagaroth are in that ship. Mm-hmm. But what he does um, because of what he's what he's trying to do to save them, uh, he ends up cocking it up. So he ends up blowing up the spaceship and all the Jagaroth, leaving him leaving him the only sole survivor in this control module thing that he's in. Which also blows up, but it, it has a, a because of what's happened in that control module and the the power of the ship exploding, that somehow manages to splinter his entire being across time. Now, obviously, that that whole sp- splintering of himself is is very simply um, described later on in the story, so we know that to be the case. But um, but that initial setup, yeah, it is slightly confusing. I don't think it's wholly clear. I think that's more to do with perhaps how it's shot. Onwards to modern-day Paris, 1979, and the Doctor and Romana are atop the Eiffel Tower, and then on they go. Um, we meet the Count and two of the many men under his employ, Karinsky, the scientist, and Herman. Karinsky's clearly frustrated and overworked. Um, the Count hands him a million francs um, to handle all the expenses of the experiments, so, of course, we find out that he's, he's financing these experiments somehow mm-hmm. um, and it's all part of his plan over the over the centuries I love the scene though when um, he's like oh let's sell one of the Gutenberg Bibles discreetly <laughs> yes so, sell a Gutenberg Bible discreetly <laughs> well as discreetly as possible but even yeah because even uh, even I love Julian Glover's um, performance of that because even he smirks and realizes, yeah, that is pretty stupid, but discreetly as possible. Yeah, it's uh, it, yeah, it's wonderful. So it, it's established that he's able to to get these funds by selling um, priceless historical artifacts. 
perhaps you know that maybe he would have accumulated more wealth but but then we don't know how long these experiments have been going on for and funding was probably you know quite expensive yes uh, and um, but also keeping in mind is that you know due to, due to inflation a, mi- a million francs is probably a lot more than well it's euros now but you know what I mean um yeah, although, although he, obviously he didn't... Although really what he could have done was uh, set up a bank account and then you use compound interest. And then tapped it... Ah, oh, plot hole. Um, and then tapped into that in 1979 and then would have a huge amount of money. But, you know, that would have been quite... He didn't think of it. No, he didn't think of it. And that, that, that probably would have been quite a boring story. Scarf's in quite a hurry. Um, he wants the experiments done, you know, he wants another another test done today, mm-hmm. he tells the doctor, um, not the doctor, the professor, Karinsky. I wonder what the hurry is. I mean, there's no urgency to the tests. No, but I mean... Is I th- it just impatience? I think it's impatience, because at the same time he's been living in this same period, but also he w- he's also been sensing that the history of his other splintered selves... And now he's at this point in history because you know it's established later on that you know he's he's been able to um, steer Earth to a certain extent in its technological development to get them to the basic, just the basic requirements to set up these experiments to hopefully get somewhere. So yeah, I think um, I mean he, it could be his his personality in general, but I think it's understandable given how long he's had to wait. That finally, you know, he's almost at the stage of where he needs to be. You know, he, he's getting a bit impatient and let, let's hurry this along, please. So Karinsky's done this experiment and um, the Doctor and Ramana experience this kind of time glitch when they're in the cafe. Mm-hmm. And an artist is at the table opposite sketching Ramana and somehow depicts her as having a broken clock face. Mm. That's interesting that an artist would perceive something like that. Yeah, I mean, I sort of... Because some people have, have said when they're reviewing that story, this story is that that doesn't make any sense. Like, who is this guy? And he just vanishes. But, you know, you could say, well, maybe it's it's a comment that artists have a certain perception of things um, and are able to depict that through artistic license. The fact that he vanishes and isn't seen again could be, well, um, these, these cracks in time, which... Um, is established as linked to the experiments that um, the Count is funding can render people um, you know who, who once existed then just suddenly vanished uh, suddenly vanish so, so I think you could I think you could explain it on those lines do you think that makes sense? Um, kind of <laughs> I don't think we'll ever explain this yeah I mean it's, it's not explained in terms of the story I think um, and that's probably um, a weakness because this story was written in, in in an awful lot of time pressure because David Fisher, um, who's a who's an excellent um, a writer, and he'd written a, a number of Doctor Who stories at this point, and would later go on to write uh, the Leisure Hive uh, for Tom Baker's final season. He uh, he'd written a story which was quite complex. Uh, it had roughly the sort of plot that we have here, but it was to do with gambling and. Um, it was quite complicated and uh, so on. So it, it needed a complete rewrite, but there was very little time to, to get to that point. So Douglas Adams, uh, along with uh, producer Graham Williams, I've forgotten the time scale. I think they had to bash out this script in four days to maybe a week and just, you know, just do 
pretty much all-nighters just to get the damn thing done. And the fact that, um, considering how good the script is, given the, the, the pressure that they were, un they were under, is, is remarkable. But obviously certain things are, are going to put in which don't entirely make sense. And maybe with slight hangovers from David Fisher's original script, and this might be one of them. Because in terms of the story, yeah, that this, this artist isn't actually explained. But I think me as a viewer, it's sort of, I don't think it's a, it's a glaring plot hole, it doesn't no. bother me. And I can, I can, as I explained, that's my reading of it. I can sort of bring myself to go, well, maybe it's commenting on this and maybe it goes into the, you know, without making huge leaps of the imagination. So I think it, I think the story gets away with it. I mean, when you, when I was, when I first watched City of Death, and it's even the same when I'm re-watching it now, I don't. I don't come to that point and go, hang on a minute, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm sold in the moment. Um, I've just a thought, if it wasn't for the artist, they would never have went to the Louvre. No, that's, that, that is actually true, yeah. So, I mean, he does function as a, as a plot device. It brings, it, it, it brings art, the theme of art, into the story. Yes. Uh, because that does lead the conversation. As you said, uh, the Doctor and Romana then talk about art, and she's talking about computer pictures. He's like, computer pictures, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. And then he wants to show us some real art. Yes, yeah, so, and then, and then yeah, so it takes her to the Louvre, yeah. Which is, it's a delightful scene, but again, it, it sort of goes into um, this idea that Douglas Adams writes into the story of, well, what is art? Um, you know, because um, from Romana's point of view, it's something that you know depicts something entirely realistically um so if art is produced by a machine that's fine but from the doctor's point of view it's going no that's not what art is about it's about um human human expression yeah. human expression and human achievement and i'm with the doctor on this one uh, because if you look at the history of of civilization uh, one of the remarkable things the, the, that you see is how we as, as mankind have developed is through artistic techniques that science and maths brought into uh, into art and you know you see it from you know compare art which still has merit and worth you know but compare you know um, art from the middle ages to the renaissance and beyond and how you know how things have, have developed and changed and just that simple scene of Romana talking about computer pictures and the doctor going, computer pictures? Absolute rubbish. I'm taking it to the Louvre. But then you have that fantastic scene in the Louvre as well where they're just, you know, they're talking about the Mona Lisa. Romana makes an observation that once heard will never leave your mind. <laughs> and what is that? She has no eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's true. The, the fact that the doctor, you know, because the doctor, you know, goes... The Mona Lisa, the, you know, the Doctor has picked that as a remarkable piece of art and one of the, the, the greatest uh, artistic achievements. <laughs> um, so obviously he's familiar with it. And then, you know, Romano's going, but why has she got no eyebrows? And the fact that the Doctor never noticed that before. Um, but again, it's humorous. But yeah, you're right. That has never, ever left me. <laughs> so if every time... I mean, I've got to admit, although I do think it's a good painting, I do think its reputation is a bit overrated, in honest. Hark at me, the art expert. Um, but yeah, um, the, the, the uh, yeah, it's just, oh yeah, she, she has no eyebrows. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, we did have another great sequence of the two running through the streets of Paris to the Louvre. Romana suggests that the Braxiatel collection is better than the Louvre. A single line that would um, be adapted in the Virgin New Adventures and expanded upon in Big Finish's Bernie Summerfield. Brax. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, where are that? Um, and it's great when you've got, you know, when you've got um, extended Doctor Who f- folklore, if you like, um, and, uh, written written by fans, and the, you know the, the, how the, how one line of dialogue in a story can trigger the imagination to to, to do something else. It's great. Dudley Simpson has a, has an awful lot of fun doing the music in this uh, story. I think it's a lot more playful. Uh, uh, and a lot more witty, and I think is arguably Dudley Simpson's best score for a Doctor Who story. Um, there might be others, but I think this one's uh, tremendously good. And uh, fa- the fact that the only reason why I mention it is because uh, you mentioned that the, the moments when you're seeing the Doctor Romana, um, you know, basically walking and running through Paris, and you've got that music, uh, and the f- and Dudley Simpson writes sort of writes in George Gershwin's An American in Paris into the into the music as well. You know, it's him having a lot of fun, but if you notice it, it's just, oh yeah, that's quite a nice um, a nice little thing to, to weave into it. Uh, yeah, so Dudley Simpson writes a very good score, but has fun with it. Yeah, it's a really standout score. And in um, fact, uh, sorry to interrupt, Rob, is when it was Doctor Who's 50th anniversary and you had... Um, you know when you had uh, the Doctor Who proms that year, and they did a they did a section celebrating the classic era. Yes. Um, going through each of the Doctors, for Tom Baker's bit, um, I mean they go into Logopolis, but for Tom Baker's bit, it's this music. It's the music of City of Death. They use the clips, but they they play Dudley Simpson's score. And so it, it's interesting that this is the story that they pick to represent Tom Baker's time. And, and and the music as well. Yeah, I remember that because they did um, Tomb of the Cybermen, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Others. yeah. Mm-hmm. But yes, I love the whole scene in the in the gallery. Tom Baker's wit never stops. We have um, this great scene with the tour guide. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And then he takes he takes a bit of a bad turn from the time slip, and he um, he lands on and steals the Countess's bracelet and hits his head on and um, Duggan's gun. <laughs> yeah, again, it's a great scene. It's it's one of those scenes where um, I don't know, but you know, if you were to write that scene and going, oh god, it, the, this only works depending on how it's played. That you know, it it could really this could really fall flat. But everyone just uh, just plays it brilliantly. And again, it's sort of you know when because obviously the way that the doctor's behaving, he's sort of like falling around all over the place and going, "I've just hit your, I just hit my head on your gun. I don't have a gun. Yes, it is. Here it is." Um, and Lala just you know trying to so that getting an awful lot of attention. And uh, what she says, "Oh, he's just taking a funny turn." And then Tom Baker's line and how he delivers it, just going, "I took a funny turn. The whole world took a funny turn." Yeah, it's it's great. I love it. <laughs> I think I mean I might change my mind. Uh, the, the more we discuss this, but I think that might be my favourite scene of the story. But anyway, so many good scenes. Thought, yeah. Um, they're pursued through the streets by Duggan. Mm-hmm. He escorts them into the cafe at gunpoint. <laughs> That's when the doctor's like, Petron, two waters, <laughs> <laughs> make them yeah. doubles. Yeah, and again, this is this is <laughs> this cracks me up because you know you've got this this 
this just Parisian cafe. I mean, and you've got the typical Paris. I mean, have you seen the extras in the background in this? It's fantastic. Yeah. It's just the most French stereotypes you've ever seen with with how they're dressed and they're and you know they've got these you know you've got these two people with guns threatening um, the the doctor Romana and Duggan. And if you watch them, they, they're lo- looking at this just strange, just doing exaggerated shrugging of the shoulders going, I don't know what's going on. Um, it's just great. And this isn't the only time this happens in this story, uh, that gangsters attack. Uh, this cafe with people in it, and you just got these extras going, I don't know what's going on, we'll just... <laughs> it's fantastic, it cracks me up, it's marvellous. And I'm jumping ahead here, but there's even a scene where... Ramona and Duggan break into the cafe at night, and then they're still there the next morning after it's opened. <laughs> How was that explained? I don't know. But Did they just walk in like? I get up, but actually, because um, that scene has um, a, a tremendous line of dialogue as, as well. I'm, you know. Um, it's that scene when they're, they're broken in, and uh, Duggan says, "You can't make an omelet without breaking eggs." And at this point, you know, Duggan's just is breaking anything, you know, breaking everything. He's he's like a people. cartoon character. In the he... way, just it's his hallmark. <laughs> yeah, and just Romana's line going: "If you if you made an omelet, I'd expect I'd expect uh, to find a pile of broken crockery, a cooker in flames, and an unconscious chef." Great line. Lalabo delivers it perfectly, and it sums up Duggan brilliantly. And again, it's it's just just great, and it just it does make you chuckle. So we get to see the Countess and the Count. She explains um, quite ap- quite apprehensively to the Count about the incident at the Louvre and the missing bracelet. I think you once m- mentioned to me that um, she makes a remark about playing games and all this, um, about their relationship. He's like, what do you think I've been doing all these years? <laughs> um, so it's implied they've had a rom- romantic relationship. Um, you see, I, which begs I, the question: How did she not notice? You see, I read that line differently. So, yeah, you're right. How how she not noticed? I th- the way I read that line is, um, I think the count married the countess um, for for cover. You know, it's just you know he's he's got his wife and everything, he's fine. I think she married him for his money, and so it's just, it's just been a marriage of convenience. And so the the way I read that line is that um, you know she's been out gallivanting, having fun with other people. I mean that might not be the case. I mean keeping in mind this was you know um, this was made in 1979, and I might be reading too much into that line. So that's but that's the way I sort of read that line. But it's sort of interesting because I think later on in the story, you know, she's um, she's clearly frustrated. In fact, it's it's leading up to the climax of episode one. Um, she's clearly frustrated that the, uh, the the count is spending all his time with the professor, and then mm. when she when she finds out that the, the doctor's resting in his room and the count's on his on his own, she's going, "Oh, finally!" So she seems to be quite relieved at this point that she's managed to find so, again, potentially get some alone time with them. It's an interesting relationship. Maybe not delving. Mm. Maybe we shouldn't delve into it too much. We will more. I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> so back at the cafe. The Countess's thugs reclaim the bracelet. Duggan inquires about Scarlione's angle. <laughs> so now the Count has got the scanner back and he tells Herman to kill the two thugs as they haven't done a good enough job. What could they have done better? Well, be discreet. 
you know, description. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. It's like, um, because he said, I hope you would... I think he says a line, something on the lines of, they weren't discreet enough, kill, kill them, Herman. And then he goes, yeah, they are, but he basically goes with pleasure, because they are bumbling oaves. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Can't get the staff these days. Because no. don't they have... Um, later on, they have two more gangsters who behave in exactly the same way to bring the Doctor and Romana to their house, or mansion, or whatever it is. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So maybe they're killed as well. So, back at the cafe... Yes, of course, they get held at gunpoint again. <laughs> but I love this scene, you know, when... Because um, D- Duggan thinks um, this is all a setup and that the the Doctor and Ramon are actually working with the thugs. And uh, mm. I just... Uh, I love that whole that whole scene of... It's more to do with how Tom Baker plays it. I mean, Lala Ward and Tom Chadburn are, are great as well, but uh, my attention's on, on Tom Baker in that scene. And just... The, you know, Ramona asking the Doctor, are you all right? And he's just like, yes, I'm just sitting here enjoying Paris. There's just something about Tom Baker's delivery of that line I really like. So yes, in the final scene that you'd mentioned, the Count um, is in the laboratory mm-hmm. and he removes the rubber mask. <laughs> it was a much better edit than the Sea Devils, I think I'd mentioned, um, on our Sea Devils review. Mm. The Master's mask is pulled off. It wasn't very subtle, but with this, um, the edit was done a bit better. <laughs> I think Going because from... it's, a, it's a close-up and it's done very quick. Um, yeah. Yes, uh, I know what you mean. For, for those that don't know what we're talking about, the, the end of the Sea Devils has the master uh, escape. And how he's done that is he's um, he's hypnotised um, somebody and slipped a mask off his face on. So people think it's the master while he does a runner. And the mask is sort of fine, but I think the, the shot lingers a bit too much. So you're looking at it going, how on earth could anyone have been fooled by that? Whereas if they cut it quickly and you just see it when they're lifting the mask off. So yeah, I can get where you're coming from. I, d- I don't think it's awful, but yeah, it, it sort of takes you out the moment a bit. Whereas this... Yeah. Um, it does work. It's it, very swift. It's very swift. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good way to... Yeah, yeah, perfect. I don't know what it is. I don't mind it, though. I think it gets away with it. Because the mask is taken away, as you say, very swiftly. And then we see that there's this green spaghetti monster face thing. Which I think is a very good design, actually. Uh, I mean, it is totally alien and and, and you do buy it. But when you're zooming into the eye, um, you can see somebody's face under it. Hmm. Okay. Um, So it's a a mask on a mask. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe this isn't really the real face of. Maybe there's something even more hideous underneath. But um, but as I say, I don't, I don't, I don't mind it. I think uh, I, th- I think it is. Uh, um, it gets away with it. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's not it's not too obvious. As I say, I think I think the design of the mask is good. The countess hides the bracelet inside that puzzle box, and Herman brings in the Doctor, Ramona, and Duggan. And I love the confidence of the doctor. He walks in, pours himself a drink. I love his lines here. Like, um, he's the detective. He's been kind enough to catch me and all this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm a thief. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Romana, she's my accomplice. <laughs> and he's the detective who's been kind enough to catch me. That's his job. Our line of work dovetails beautifully. Yeah, you're right. It's It's just great. And the whole... The, whole, the way that the Doctor just takes complete charge of that situation by um, by being disarming 
<laughs> and, and being, and you know, and trying to come across as a bit of an oaf. And Tom Baker just, again, um, uh, it feels a bit unfair to single him out because I think that the cast of, of I think this story has been cast superbly. Everyone's fantastic. But there's, but Tom Baker just shines. I'm sorry. For, for me, it's um, a big part of it. A big part of my enjoyment of the story is his performance. I think this might be my favourite scene. Mm. Yeah, it might be mine as well. <laughs> so I've changed my mind from before, but oh, it's, that's the thing. There's an awful lot of good scenes here. But, mm. um, and funny actually, ones too. Yeah, funny ones. And I think for a lot of people, this will probably be their, be their favourite. I mean, I think when a lot of people think of this story in terms of dialogue and a little bit, you know, it's that, it's that line I say, what a wonderful butler, he's so violent. And that's the thing that begins the scene. Yeah, it is very good. And it, actually, everyone shines in it. Uh, and you get the way that everyone's, you know, you got the, the way that the Doctor uh, is going on. That's him to a T. The way that Romana is able to um, just open the, the Chinese puzzle box without any problem to uh, to get the bracelet again. She shines. Um, you've got the Count and the Countess and how they relate and how they're taking everything on board. Duggan's whole thing about um, the chair I mean that's him to a T um, it's actually it's a, it's, a, it's a jewel of a scene in terms of how it's written it, it, it progresses the story along so one it serves that purpose two it's delightfully written it showcases everybody's character um, superbly well it uh, it's probably a very good uh, it's, it's probably a very... If you were to show a clip of why... You know, just going right. Uh, you can only show somebody a clip of City of Death to showcase how, why this story is, is is so highly regarded. This would be the one. Yeah, I think this would probably be the one, yeah. So you're right, this is the best scene. Mm. Until we come to the next one, and that's the best scene. Now, there's something that always bugged me. When they're locked up in the basement, they light the lantern with the match. But the the light source comes from off screen behind the camera, casting shadows from the wrong place. Yeah, it's funny. Um, when I first watched uh, the story, so I didn't come to City of Death until it was released on DVD. So uh, even though it was regarded as a classic, uh, I, you know, I could see why. I mean, I'd seen clips of it, but in terms of the whole story, I, I came to it quite late. Um, and the first time I watched that scene. I thought it was just like, oh yeah, because I thought the, 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 the light um, looked like um, the actual light source, and I thought that was quite good, and I, fine. But you're quite right. When you watch that, <laughs> I don't know why it took me to the second time I saw that. It, it has bothered me ever since. I know yeah. this is typical of television, especially. Yeah, um, you can tell that the light source doesn't come from, from the right place. Yeah, it's from behind the characters when it should be in front of them. But I think it's something that possibly could have been considered and done more effectively. Yeah, I agree with that. Because I think, actually, if, if you look at the, the colour of the light and the, uh, the the luminescence of it, it's, it suits that light source very well because it's supposed to be that lamp. It's just the direction of it which is wrong, which is a shame. 
Never mind. <laughs> yeah, never mind. I mean, if if that's your quibble of a story, just going that might something's in the wrong place. It's just like, really, is that your biggest bugbear of the story? Well, it must be bloody good then. So, but I know what you mean. It, it is. It does bug me. It, yeah, I know exactly where you're coming from, Rob. Because yeah. I've got to admit, it, it, it bugs me too. But 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 not the point where I go. But <laughs> it renders the whole story completely unwatchable. Oh yes, before the leave, Romana makes an observation about the. The, the cell has dimensions. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a there's a space absent here. So we get back to that later, don't we? Mm-hmm. Um, they investigate the lab, and Doctor Karinsky enters, and um, he begins his next test on a chicken egg. For what he later thinks is um, the whole reason of the the Dragorov experiments. The, they they're doing it for the chickens. <laughs> it accelerates, and the doctor says. Yes, but you've got it wrong. Um, of course, um, he reverses the polarity, and yeah. the chicken reverts back to an egg. But it then reverts to Scaroth. Mm. Why could this be? No. So, so what it is is that. Um, so later on, when, when we find out what Scaroth's plan is, which is to travel back in time before he blew up the ship, which we see at the very beginning of the story. So uh, his own race are not destroyed and his, he's able to reunite with all his splintered selves across time. Now, put like that, that sounds perfectly reasonable. But what the Doctor realises, and of course Scarath already knows this, is that actually that explosion was essential for creating human life. The explosion of the ship was that final spark, which is everything that, you know, amino acids and all the rest of it, needed that spark to kickstart life on Earth, which eventually led to humans. So this thing where we see uh, this experiment, so um, egg, chicken, dead chicken, and then the Doctor reverses the polarity and then it reverses that. And then the Doctor and the Professor are having a bit of a chat whilst that reverse technique is still taking place. So I think what's happening is that during that experiment, it's, it's reverting right back down to um, it's it's reversing all the DNA that that egg well, that, that was, that's what I first considered when I first ever seen this story mm. and at first it had me thinking okay it's reverting back through the DNA to something really primordial and I thought is Scaroth is he part of our lineage as mm. life on earth um, but of course, that's not not quite the case. He was just um, it was just cause and effect. Yeah, true. I mean, you know, when I'm explaining this, I went, oh, "Hang on, I don't think this actually makes sense." I feel like I'm skating on thin ice here. But I think, I mean, you have a spaceship of full of Jagaroth. I mean, we don't know how many, but we're assuming quite a lot, and especially and especially because it's explained that Scaroth is the last of the Jagaroth. Mm. So. We're assuming that this spaceship that blew up contained the entire race of the Jagaroth. I'm assuming that's an awful lot, as well as Scaroth. So I think when we're seeing that, so there's obviously going to be an awful lot of um... kind of splatter from this Jagaroth. <laughs> so it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't just the radiation which caused the chemicals to spark life. It could have been the bits of Jagaroth. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Where you feel like you're skating on thin ice when you break it, you're going, mm, maybe, maybe this doesn't make any sense. 
It sort of does when you're watching it, but when you're doing it, it's just like, oh my, now that I'm analysing it, yeah, maybe it is a whole load of bunkum. <laughs> I think it works well. It's one of those things of, for the love of God, don't analyse it too much. When you're watching it, it makes It's what sense. we do best. <laughs> Otherwise, what's the point of this podcast? Um, I think it makes sense when you're watching We ask it. the questions no one dares ask. <laughs> <laughs> for good reason. Turns out Doctor Who is the worst programme ever made. Because uh, the writing is just abysmal. But somehow they managed to get away with it. I think it makes sense when you're watching it. Because um, you're going, well... Especially when, you know, that um, the Jaggeroth were there at the very beginning. They exploded. It gives a, a bit of a clue to what that is. Maybe that's what gives the Doctor the clue of why the Jaggeroth need to, need to be killed in the first place. With that explosion, blah, 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 blah. Um, but that's it. Just take it at face value. Don't look at it anymore. Don't, don't look. Just enjoy this witty line. And then, I don't know. Romana reveals the wall behind the cellar, sealed up about 500 years ago. And we have, is it six Mona Lisa's? Or is it eight? Is it eight? Oh. Or is it seven? <laughs> no, I think there's an even number. I think it's eight. All real fakes. Yeah. So the Count puts the bracelet scanner from the Countess's wrist um, into this fancy projector, mm. um, which creates a, it, it creates this kind of tangible project, projection of the Louvre. Yeah. Um, he uses a sonic knife to cut the glass um, and uses a ni- nice bit of actual physics um, matching the ref- refractive index of the air and bend in the laser beams uh-huh. um, not, not to trigger the alarm so a nice bit of science in there so Duggan kicks the cellar wall and um, I forgot to mention that yeah he's the one that kicked the cellar wall down um, and the doctor can't understand why someone would go to all this trouble to, of stealing the Mona Lisa when they already had six so the mystery thickens oh in that case Rob you're right it is six it's not eight yeah Oh yes, and um, I wrote down here, Duggan mentions that there are seven potential buyers. Yeah, so the six fake in brackets, plus the one that's about to, plus the one that's in the Louvre. So it was an even number, yeah. but an odd number overall. <laughs> I was on the right line when I said eight, but maybe it's nine, but I just got the numbers wrong. Yes. <laughs> and the count enters, and of course, Duggan knocks him out. The three of them sneak out the cellar. Actually, hang um, on, hang on, Rob. I've just realised this is my favourite scene. <laughs> no, I'm being serious. This is th- all the other ones. They're really bloody good, but this one is my favourite. That whole thing when the you know when it's it's being established of you know wh- why there's six uh, f- you know fake Mona Lisas, although they have the the the, the paint pigment and um, uh, Da Vinci's painting techniques, so they they appear to be real, and then the counters come to join them. I I just love that whole scene of just the doctor trying to, you know, can you tell me did it and just no. <laughs> and it's great, it's just like or, or how you knew to be there, no. And it just goes, I look six I like six think tanks. Good. Um it's it's great. It's so you know those you know the it it's sort of like a response to those those things of you know, whenever you have that moment when the villain for 
I mean, it's really to tell us, the audience, what's going on. But in terms of the reality, the story makes no sense. And I'm going to tell you all my plans. Just by See, answering your questions. you say this, but in the next episode, it's exactly what he does do in the past. Yeah, yeah, that is true. But yeah. I think, but on this occasion, they, they get, you know, they sort of address that. And they just basically, he's going, no. No, I'm not going to tell you that. I was just like, I like Six Six Nine. It's good. Uh, I like, I, I do like that scene. Um, I, I just think it's it's a lot of fun. It's very very simple, and again, it's it's played very well. Yeah. But then Duggan knocks him out. Yeah. Um, I think they knock out the Countess, and the Doctor needs to go back and meet an Italian. So um, he goes back to the Louvre, and it's his TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Uh, was the TARDIS in the Louvre the whole time? No, no, it's, it's not in the Louvre. It's in it's a, uh, it's in another art gallery. Ah, right, okay. Fair enough. Bad observation on my part. <laughs> um, he travels back to see Leonardo, but he's not home. And then Scaroth enters to the Doctor's surprise. So. Yeah, um, and that's I think, and this is the cliffhanger. Now, um, the Doctor is stopped by a soldier, who's Peter Halliday. Uh, who played Packer in the uh, invasion? And right. Yes. Peter Halliday is a fantastic actor, um, but it's sort of a, a shame what happens to his career, especially because he appeared in Doctor Who stories several times, and every on each and every occasion he seems to play smaller and smaller roles. So the invasion, he plays Packer. You know, it's a big part of that story. Here plays the soldier, um, you know, a memorable character, and plays it very well. Uh, and then his last appearance in Doctor Who, I think, was uh, the priest in Remembrance of the Daleks. But anyway, uh, he, he, you know, he's here and he plays the part well. But anyway, yeah, I love, I love this cliffhanger. It's, um, I think, I think it's one of the best in uh, in Doctor Who. But I think it's probably the best in this story because it. You don't uh, see it coming. You don't see it coming. Definitely one that has you scratching your head. Yeah, and just going, you know, how on earth is Count Scorleone who 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 seems to be uh, ca- oh well again it, I love again it's just a great scene of because um, when Peter Halliday as, as the soldier approaches the doctor going you know who are you what are you doing here oh, uh, I'm here to see um, Leonardo da Vinci oh no one's allowed to see him he's doing work for Captain Tancredi and he's got Captain T. Creedy do you know him no um, <laughs> again oh, it's just this story's just comedy gold and again, it's uh, Tom, Tom Baker just playing as a Captain Captain Tancredi. Do you know him? No. Um, I again, I love the joke and I love the delivery of it. But again, but then it leads into this absolutely amazing reveal of going, where the hell is this story going? Because Captain Tancredi appears to be Captain Scarlione. He goes, "What are you doing here?" Well, that's the question I should be asking you, Doctor. It's a great cliffhanger, and yeah, yeah, it makes no sense. Like, how can he know him if it's mm. in the past? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And of course, we assume maybe this is a future version of Scaroth, but no, um, all these twelve versions kind of intersect, and they, they kind of share the same existence, but fractured. Yeah, yeah. Romana and Duggan sneak into the Louvre somehow. Um, oh, Romana claims to be 125 at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, you know, time lords lie. <laughs> yeah, which uh, is 
you know, it's an interesting maybe internal joke because when uh, when we're first introduced to Ramon, and this was when she was played by Mary Tam in the Reboss operation, there's a great scene where um, they're talking about age and she's going, um, you know, the, the doctor says, I've forgotten what age, he says, it's like 745 or something like that. And Ramona goes, you've lost count. And she, and she, she goes... And then the doctor gets disgruntled and goes, well, I ought to know my own age. And she goes, well, yes, but after the first few centuries, things get a bit foggy, don't they? And then, But then, there, yeah, there is that thing that the doctor lies about his own age. So maybe that's sort of rubbed off on Ramada and she's lying about hers now, which yeah. is quite a nice little, quite nice, yeah. little bit of sort of like inconsequential incontinuity. It's there if you notice it as a fan. It's a bit funny, but anyway. Yeah, especially by the new era, you just know his age is a lot of rubbish because it is literally... Christopher Addison was 900 and all the books couldn't account for him being 900. Yeah, well in Time and the Rani, the Doctor says he's 953. Yeah, that's right. So we know he's lying and then, of course, by Series 4, David Tennant says he's 904. I'm like, come on, man, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and then they progress so much that um, Matt Smith or uh, Capaldi end up being 1200-odd, don't they? Yeah, um, and of course Capaldi is another four billion year old at some point. <laughs> yeah, and then d- didn't um, and then there was a couple of times I think when John John Pertwee's doctor said he was several thousand years old or something. So it's just it's all well, to be honest, I always forget my age. <laughs> you know, it changes every year. <laughs> it's funny that yeah, it does. It's weird. Yeah, I do think it's. Uh, I think. If it wasn't for the fact that we kept birth certificates, I think it would be this point of, I don't know how old I am, I'm 30-something, but who's counting? And of course, um, the Doctor um, has had many past lives now, Hmm. so it's all kind of redundant anyway. Uh, uh, Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. I love um, how... Duggan demonstrates the alarm. Like, how could they got got through this? And he he just triggers it. <laughs> yeah, held bells. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then he jumps out of a window. <laughs> Brilliant, love it. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah, so Doctor Karinsky finds the the six Mona Lisas, and Skarov's kind of mumbling away. And presently, in the past, um, Skarov explains everything to the Doctor. You know who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very honest about that and the Doctor figures out his plan with the Mona Lisa's mm-hmm. so he's got him sussed out eventually the, the Doctor ends up in um, in thumbscrews doesn't he oh before this he, ta- he takes a Polaroid of the guard doesn't he knocks him out we'll have the whole um, say cheese smile <laughs> oh, um, the Doctor writes um, this is a fake on all of the, the all of the blank canvases and he writes a message to Leonardo backwards. Mm-hmm. Is that something the Doctor's done before? No, no. What that is, it's uh, that's in reference to Leonardo himself. Leonardo um, sometimes wrote notes uh, which could only be read properly if you looked at them in a mirror. Ah, okay. So, so that's what the uh, so that's what the Doctor's doing. He's he's doing what Leonardo da Vinci uh, himself actually did as well. But um, if the Doctor had done it before. I mean, I mean, that's how I think, because I know that Leonardo da Vinci actually did do that. Don't, that must be the case, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's been used in any other story. I mean, I may be, yeah. I may be mistaken, but I c- yeah. can't think of anything. 
One thing that bugs me, um, after the Doctor leaves, surely Scaroth would have maybe found the note and the canvases. Ah, but the Doctor does something really rather clever. He turns them upside down so they can't immediately uh, be read. Ah. Okay, yeah. So back in the present day, the Count wants Kerensky to build a big machine, um, but he refuses um, when he discovers the nature of it. And um, of course he says, well, you, you, you don't have the money to do this. And Herman enters with the Mona Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> the Mona Lisa is no longer in the Louvre. <laughs> uh, and then, and then uh, yeah, the professor's reaction going, oh yeah, it's just like, oh, and then what does, um, what does the count say? Um, he's, he, oh, what I remember is that, enjoy it or you will die. It's, <laughs> the, uh, I remember, I went, oh, for some reason that's the only bit that's, uh, the, just the way that the count says that line and just strolls off in this, this bizarre green geometric dressing gown he's got on. <laughs> Do you want a dressing gown like that? Yeah. It just, yeah. It strikes me as the sort of the dressing gown that if you were to wear, you would go on a power trip. It has that look. So, talking to his wife, the Count speaks of um, all his achievements. He caused the pyramids to be built, the heavens to be mapped, invented the first wheel, shown the true use of fire. So he's been he's been this crucial part in human history. Yeah, um, bloody marvellous. Should appreciate yeah. it. He even seeded life. Scaroth then has this commune with his past selves, and this is how the Doctor managed to manages to escape. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get this funny montage of Scaroth throughout the centuries. <laughs> He's like this, this Egyptian version and this kind of Jesus version. I don't know. <laughs> and then there's some some version which I think's supposed to hint of some far flung in the future version. Which, if oh. that's the case, doesn't quite make sense of the story, but yeah, um, yeah it's uh, it emphasises sort of that that aspect of the story that his selves are splintered across uh, across time, uh, and it's great, and I think it's needed, and it renders him incapable of of, of acting, and you know, it it emphasises the need of why he would want to make himself whole because that's not a really great way of to be. So narratively, it's it's an important scene. It is slightly ropey, though. Mm-hmm. I think the way that it comes across, which is a bit of a shame. I mean, yeah. unless you think that I'm being a bit too, a bit overly critical. Do you mean the the transition between the past selves, or do you mean the the acting from Scaroth? No, I'd, no. I think the the way that it sort of like cross fades and dissolves and so on, I, th- I think mm. is fine. Um, I haven't got a problem with that. I think it's just the look of them. Mm. Um, I just think maybe, I mean, and I appreciate why the you know because you know budget was at a premium, and for the sake of just a couple of very close shots which are going to be seen in a matter of seconds, you're not going to spend an awful lot of time and money on doing it. So I can kind of see the practical reasons for it. I just think um, maybe the makeup and the little bit of costume you see in that moment could be a bit better. Mm-hmm. But as I say, I can I can see the practical reasons of why it wasn't too heavily focused on. Um, I mean, it gets again, it gets away with it. I just think it looks. Um, I think it's a bit of a shame, really, because I think um, for the most part, I think the production of the story is really rather good. I mean, as we've said before, you've got the Paris locations, which are brilliant, and I think I think the sets of um, I don't want to say I, what is this. This is a house or a mansion. A chateau. 
Chateau, that's it. It's been bugging me. Yes, of course, there's a chateau. Um, I think the sets in the, in the chateau are, are really, really good. And I think that the costumes as, as well on the whole are, are, are excellent as well. So yeah. I think uh, when you get sort of like this little bit thrown in the mix of it all, it sort of highlights of going, mm, it looks, I wish it just looked a little bit better, that's all. Hmm. Maybe better without it. <laughs> no, no, uh, not better without it, because as I said, I think um, story-wise, I think it's important to establish that um, the, these moments occur. And it, it it's nice to see it. We've been told it, but now we're actually seeing it. So I think it's 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 nice that they that they did it, and they made the effort. And as I say, it isn't awful. It just, in comparison to everything else, it just stands out as being a little bit, um, little bit rough around the edges. I yeah. think. I suppose the the different appearances of Scaroff, they had to be, they had to make them stand out and elaborate. Otherwise, we're just going to face after face of Scaroff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like, yeah, we get it. They look the same because that's the point. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I get, yeah, I get that. It's a bit like, you know, the James Bond movie from Russia with Love. I remember the first time I ever saw that because this was when it was just this. It was just being broadcast on television. It wasn't high resolution. Uh, I don't think the, the films hadn't been um, remastered at all. So you know how you've got the pre-title sequence of that film. You've got James Bond walking around um, with a gun, and he gets—he he seems to get strangled by uh, Red Grant. But then it's established that that wasn't James Bond. It was a man to make to make it look like James Bond. He was wearing a mask, so his, his, his mask is pulled off, and then it goes into the title sequence. <laughs> but I remember the first time I saw that. I, I remember really being confused because. They had the mask of Sean Connery taken off to someone who looked like Sean Connery. I was like, "What's the point? What, what's the point?" I'm really good. what. Of course, it wasn't until years later. Finally, I think it was you know it was a bit spruced up, but you're seeing it a bit better on on DVD, and then of course Blu-ray when it has been fully remastered. And actually, the guy doesn't look like Sean Connery, and they even made the point of actually having the guy have a mustache. <laughs> but yeah, just, anyway, you just talking about that, it just reminded me of that. The first time I saw from Russia with Love going, what was the point of that? It doesn't make any sense. You've taken... The, I actually thought it was Sean Connery. You've got, you've got... You've made the point of making a Sean Connery mask, put it on Sean Connery, to, to then take it off to reveal it's Sean Connery. What the hell is this? <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, so as the Doctor escapes the past, escapes um, Scaroth, um, I think the Count realises that the Doctor is the key to his problem, which probably um, stands to reason why Scaroth is fine um, doing away with Kerinsky at some point, because he doesn't he doesn't necessarily need him anymore. Yeah, and it, it's obviously the Doctor and Romana have that, that last bit of information to do with time which is obviously what he needs because the, the professor only has a certain amount of intelligence for the time he's in so yeah yeah that does make sense there is a bit where the doctor runs to the louvre and he talks to the <laughs> the police outside and he just runs in do they do they assume he's just some detective or something yeah again it's just uh oh but again it's it yeah the, the gendarmes it's again it's some wonderful wonderful french stereotypes um you're just the way that they talk and 
I mean, it's clearly dubbed that scene, but I just love it. I can't help but just adore it. But yeah, it, it, it just... Maybe they recognised the Doctor from before and just going... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It doesn't quite make sense of why there would be, you know... Um, the Mona Lisa's been stolen. What? <laughs> just stolen by the loop. Um, <laughs> and they just invite him in. And just... just invite him in, yeah. And then, and then sees the... Um, the, uh, the woman who works in the Louvre. The tour guide. Tour guide, that's it. Thanks, Rob. Uh, and then sees the tour guide, and because obviously she remembers him before when he took a funny turn, which is just a bit of sort of like jittery about him, which uh, which make you know which makes sense. And again, I, I just I love her performance of that, and uh, again, it, it's just delightful. Um, mm. She must think the doctor's barking mad though, because um, oh, in fact, because that reminds me of uh, a bit of dialogue we hadn't talked about in episode one. You know, when he's going, "It's the greatest treasure of the universe," and the the Roman is like, "The world, doctor, the world." What are you talking about? It just seems silly talking about the user. Oh, let them go up, let them gape. What do I care? I love that. Yeah, I love that as well. It's just great. And the fact that, again, uh, he's going, I've got the whole world to think about. The whole world. Pats her on the arm and then walks off. And just go, who is this lunatic? <laughs> she retired the next day. She's all putting up with this crap. All these lunatics. So, the cliffhanger for part three. It's the famous, no, not that switch. <laughs> Do a stretch, sort of convulsing with your hands up in the air. It is it. Um, mm-hmm. Skarov tells Professor Kerensky to go to the centre of the of the device and, of course, he activates it and accelerates um, his ageing. Yeah. And he turns into a, well, he gradually turns into an old man. His glasses fall off. You know? <laughs> well... Now again, it's sort of I could understand the time pressures of doing this. It's a simple technique, but when it when you haven't done it properly, it shows. So obviously they've got these different stages of his death, and then to show it, they the you know they're setting up at each one and then dissolving it into each shot. So yeah, you're right. His glasses fall down, go back up, and then fall back down again. <laughs> they do, don't they? Yeah, they do. Yeah, this is quite match up. Ramona admits that she's not from this planet in part four, but you know I think. I think Scarab's going to figure that out at this point. And this is another example where the Count explains fully um, his predicament and his plan. He's very honest and open. Explains that he's, he's been split between 12 lives and he wants to go back and stop his past self from pressing the button. Which again, you know, you can understand it. I'm not, you know, I'm not unsympathetic to what he wants to do and why. And when, you know, and Romana goes, yeah, that seems perfectly reasonable. I get it. It just so happens that uh, to do so would would mean that um, life on Earth doesn't begin. It's a strange one for Romana. It, is she um, is she being sincere in helping him? Well, no. I know she does set the two minute limit hmm. on the device that she makes, but is part of her being sincere because she she should have an obligation to um, protect the web of time. Yeah, that's true, but maybe she, you know, maybe she wasn't fully aware of. I mean, because it just so happens that Jaroth pressing the button triggers life to take place on Earth. Now, if that wasn't the case, and all what he's doing is changing, you know, is she's she's basically going right? Okay, well, if I help him out, that stops an entire race of people being destroyed. 
Mm. I mean, on that, on the face of it, you would go, well, if I don't do it, is that moral? But obviously, the, the doctor comes in and fully know and going, look, I can't, I can't let you do that. Um, in fact, because again, that that's a great line because he goes, you know, I can't let you mess around with time. And even Jagaroth goes, what do you? That's what you always do. And I love Tom Baker's reaction and the way he delivers that line. He goes, ah, yes, well, I know what I, I, I know what I'm doing, and I'm an expert. Um, and then you know he establishes he knows that if Jagaroth gets away with what he wants to do, then the whole life on Earth will be extinguished. So that's the threat of the story. So yeah. Yeah, big one. Um, the Countess shows the Doctor the first draft of Hamlet mm. because Gareth's got all these um, ancient antiquities and artwork and books and things, literature. Mm. Um, and the Doctor recognises his own handwriting in the book. <laughs> yeah, and the Doctor kind of plants the first seeds of doubt with the Countess here in her mind because she starts to question who the Count really is. And yeah. it's not until the doctor leaves the room. Um, she's kind of laughing it off, and then she's like, oh, oh, wait a minute. And she gets this um, kind of Egyptian papyrus. And, of course, the doctor had mentioned a, a, a mon- an alien with a green face and a, and a big eye in the middle. Yeah. And, and she, she sees that depicted on this ancient Egyptian... Um, papyrus. Uh, papyrus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So she starts to... She starts to doubt here. Yeah, I mean, I like that scene because I think uh, the Countess's reaction to what the Doctor's talking about is believable. You know, because if someone would go, you know, um, he's really this alien with, you know, another way he describes it, and she just goes, you know, just laughing it off. And yeah, I love. Um, I, again, uh, it's Tom Baker's uh, performance of it, but again, it's the lines, you know, where he, you know when he's talking about. Um, how he describes the Countess as discreet you know to begin with which could be read as a compliment but then the way that that conversation goes is the way he uh, he then turns it into an insult and is essentially calling her naive it's a it's a great scene in terms of the dialogue and how the how both actors are performing it yeah um, especially uh, I think Catherine Schell here because um the way that you know she finds the whole thing humorous and basically laughs the doctor out of the room and then just that that brief moment of doubt and going hang on something he said has rang a bell and then she goes to check it out and as you say gets the papyrus out and it was like well the, how would he know this no one else has seen this maybe there's some truth in it um so it, again a very well written scene performed superbly well and that leads into another fantastic scene which is finally that confrontation between the countess um and Jagaroth and you know when he reveals himself that whole that whole scene of how unsure and how desperate uh, the countess is and it, it's you know it's um it, it's sad when she dies you know th- she she's killed by Jagaroth in the basement Skarov says he wants to go and say farewell to his wife hmm. um and i know he's he's just trying to his main priority is to save the Jagaroth, mm-hmm. but does he r- really have any hatred or resentment for the human race in general? Uh, and could he possibly have love there? I think Anything? love's overstating it, but I mean, obviously they've been together Maybe for a while. Maybe he's quite fond. I think, yeah, I think that's probably the way of, of describing it. F- fond of her, and um, 
you know, she's been a companion t- to him, and uh, have sh- you know, and um, you know, she's been useful. So yeah, I think uh, I think there's yeah, I think there's fondness there. Do you think there's any other relationships um, Scarves had that would um, be similar to that? Like Herman, do you think he sees Herman as expendable, or kind of a friend? I think as a friend because he never he never threatens Herman, um, yeah. and they always seem to have you know that they share humorous moments and they, they can, the, the the scenes that we have between them they're, they're both relishing in what they're doing, um, and in fact in in some respects you know um, Herman and the Count I mean they sh- they seem to share a um, sort of like a nihilism I suppose I mean mm. the the fact that you know. Th- the count just basically, you know, kill those two henchmen, mm. you know, and, uh, and Herman just goes, you know, with pleasure, excellency, and then just goes off and does it. Um, but then they have that laugh between themselves with, uh, you know, that uh, the Mona Lisa is no longer in the Louvre and, and all that. So, yeah. Mm. yeah I've just remembered um, Scarif killed the countess with the bracelet, mm-hmm. which implies that he he's had this control over her and he could have killed her at any point if it, uh, if, it if the bracelet was a gift to her to use of course it was this um i don't manesian scanner whatever it was yeah but um it was also the means to to dispose of her yeah that's true um but was that it, incidental or intentional? Do you think? I think probably that, that intentional, or maybe he he built it in as a safety precaution. But uh, mm. I mean, he only used it, um, you know, when uh, you know when she had a gun pointed at him. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I mean, at the same time, it was, yeah, it's a he's he's a complex character. So back in the basement, um, the doctor has kind of realised that um, Scarif wants to shift the whole world back in time mm. um, so that starts to make sense to him and Duggan breaks him out of the cell quite easily doesn't he kicks the door open um, and Scarif is waiting and then he travels back and the doctor decides to follow so they take one last run through the streets of Paris to the Louvre um, oh, oh where is it that the TARDIS is held is it the other gallery yeah yeah it's another art it's gallery. the other gallery he just tried to hail a taxi, but he shouted, "Is no one interested in history?" Yeah, I remember when um, when this was after the TV movie came out because I know that there was a slight repackaging in, um, of of the VHSs that took place and stuff, and the 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 VHSs started to have uh, adverts for other Doctor Who. Um, uh, merchandise so other VHSs and the books and. Uh, I think one or two other things, um, and they used clips of you know the doc you know the, from various Doctor Who stories, and they had this this the Dalek was narrating uh, this trailer, and they had that th- that was the clip that they used. They went, "Is no one interested in history?" I had no idea what the story was, where that came from, but I just went, "God, that sounds you know." It seemed exciting, like in a moment of um, a moment of a drama. I was like, "What is that story?" And of course, it's, it's from City of Death. And so when it comes to that, it's a bit weird because it has this... Because it's like, is nobody interested in history? And that was it, and then the trailer moved on. I don't know what it is. I wish that that, that's, that would cut that here because, you know, you got Tom Baker going, there's no one interested in history? And he goes, he does this weird, hmm? And I don't... 
Do you know which? You know what I mean? It's just the way that he punctuates the end of that that delivery, and I just think it's weird. Anyway, like like now we're getting like really picky. Where it's just like the way he punctuates this particular. But yeah, I don't know. I just I just find it really weird. <laughs> I think it I think it ruins the moment slightly. But anyway, let's move on. Um. Oh yeah. So in the art gallery, um. A couple of people are admiring the TARDIS mm. and ponder its, its artistic meaning. Um, do you want to go into this further? Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. We have two cameo appearances. Uh, the, the the art critics in this scene admiring the TARDIS as a piece of art is none other than Eleanor Bron and John Cleese. Um, you know, and I th- you know, because as we said before, there's this this one of the things that is sown throughout the, the story is uh, what is art? What does it mean to people? How do people appreciate it? And I think Douglas Adams has written into the story where the Doctor's understanding of art is is the correct version of it. And here we have two, you know, pompous art critics uh, in an art gallery. And it's sort of like, right, these are the people where you could plonk anything in an art gallery, doesn't matter what it is, and they would go, mm, yes, it's art, isn't it marvellous? And it's it's... So one, I think it goes into that, but it's it's just brilliant. It's 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 humorous in of itself. So they're admiring the TARDIS and just going, you know, the, this police public call box because the fact that it's here, but it has no call to be here, you know, and all this. And it's great. John Cleese is just playing it brilliantly. Eleanor Braun, you know, just going the redundancy vestiges of its function, you know, and it, they just play these very minor role I mean the fact that they're in this story I mean you've got Eleanor Bron and John Cleese um, making a, a cameo appearance in it's Doctor so Who random, it's, yeah. it's, oh, it's it's amazing it's like on the same level of the fact that Douglas Adams wrote this story John Cleese is in it it's just great and then of course the gag to this scene is that Duggan, the Doctor, and Romana dive into the TARDIS, shut the door, the TARDIS dematerializes, and these two art critics are completely unfazed, but just think it's the most amazing piece of artwork they've ever seen, and just describe it as exquisite. It's great, and it's already, I mean, a story which has so, so, so much, I don't know, style, class, and wit to it in terms of the story itself, the writing of it, the performance of it. And this is like the cherry on the cake, this lovely little scene, which thematically adds to the story. But we have Eleanor Bron and John Cleese playing these 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 small parts. It's just it's brilliant. Yeah, I like the way you've pointed that out about the fact that um these are looking at art as art critics. Mm. Perhaps not appreciating it the way that the doctor would appreciate art. Mm. And we've yeah. got these so we've got these three kind of perspectives, Romana, um, the Doctor and then this in the middle um, mm-hmm. yeah good contrast yeah but I mean so I think thematically it, it adds to the story but it's uh, but it's a little it's a little punchline in of itself I mean you could ex- you know you could extract that scene and you know obviously people who are aware of Doctor Who which is an awful lot of people fans or not and I think it you know it works out of context as well Set in an art gallery, it's perfectly obvious. The TARDIS happens to be there. Two people are admiring the TARDIS as a piece of art. That's kind of funny. Um, 
the TARDIS crew dive into it, it dematerializes, and they just think it's the best piece of artwork they've ever seen. It's kind of witty and humorous in of itself, but it also works in the confines of the story. Uh, yeah, it's just a, a lovely little moment. Yeah, it works. So, 400 million BC, <laughs> yeah. they spot the Jaggarath ship. Oh, and here comes um, another classic Duggan line after Ramona and the Doctor's like technical observations of the ship. Duggan points and says, with a sudden realisation, that's a spaceship. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, it, it's fantastic. And again, it's just Tom Chadwick's <laughs> the way he plays That's that. a spaceship. <laughs> yeah, he's fantastic. I think, um, do you think uh, Duggan's the, like one of the great companions we never had? Like as a regular yes. companion? Yeah. He's not... We'll have, to, we'll have to count him as a companion, don't we? Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, because he's been in the TARDIS. Yeah, sure. But, I mean, as a, as a, as a regular, um, yeah. oh, I just feel... I dare to say, how many adventures did they have after leaving the art gallery? <gasps> yes! Right, okay. This is one moment where I think Big Finish need to plug a gap. Yeah. Because the TARDIS still has the randomizer. Uh, yes. But... Into it, so maybe they didn't actually travel uh, straight to 450 or whatever it was. Yes, so maybe and hey, he had to recognize a spaceship from somewhere. <gasps> yes, exactly. Right, okay, this is something that Big Finish need to address. We need, um, we need Doc, uh, Tom Baker, Lala Ward, and Tom Chadburn with uh, it has to happen. It has to happen. It's it's great, yeah. Oh, actually, yeah. I'm being serious, I want to get in contact with Big Finish and suggest it. It would make so much sense. Even the end of this episode, it's such a fond farewell to Duggan. Yeah. And he, the, he's the only known him for episodes, but apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being serious. I want Big Finish to address this. I just think it would be tremendous because I think the stories would have to fit into this sort of style. And I would just totally. want... yeah. I, I, I would want them to do... I mean, if they were thinking, well, let's do some gritty stuff. No, no, no. I don't. I don't think they would if if they if they were to do this. But it'd just be no. We want some really nice, delightful, witty, enjoyable stories like what Douglas Adams would have provided. I, mm-hmm. Oh, that would be delightful. Right. I think. In all seriousness, I think we obviously before we put this podcast out. Um, I think we need. We'll uh, have to campaign for it. Yeah. Yeah. Get in contact with Big Finish and suggest it. So the Doctor finds the building blocks for life on Earth mm-hmm. and he concludes that um, a massive burst of radiation from the Jaggeroth ship um, will be the catalyst that sparks life. So yes, the big exis- existential questions answered here. Big questions, yeah. The origin of life, supposedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think this is too big a question to answer in this kind of story or is it or is this kind of stuff being alluded to in this kind of story um kind of fine no no i think it's absolutely fine i mean we know with the, the t- science fiction can do this but we know that douglas adams i mean he he puts these big ideas but you know i mean this is where i think this is you know serious um skill and ability as a writer to put forward you know big ideas such as this in an mm-hmm. in a presentable enjoy and enjoyable manner i mean that that takes that takes you know intelligence 
to, to grapple with the ideas in the first place and real skill to present them in such a way if um if this idea was done in a more in a more serious way and it was um there was more focus on the origin of life i would have preferred a bit more ambiguity because does it de- would it debunk the idea of creation in a god well i mean not necessarily i mean it's sort of interesting that you mention that because uh, as i understand it graham williams was um I mean, I may be wrong here, but my understanding is Graham Williams, who was the producer, um, was religious, and in fact, that was one of the that was one of the reasons why he introduced, uh, you know, the, the key to time and the white and black guardian uh, to, to to the series as a, as an idea that um, you know the, the Doctor travels for for a purpose, and there there are big you know and there are big um, big things governing the the, the functions of, of the universe and so on. Um, but then at the same time I don't think he, he would have put that you know, uh, belief uh, in the means of telling a good story whether it would contradict that or not um, yeah. I mean the fact that the whole the entire universe is in existence uh, you know in terms of the, the story doesn't contradict um, no because the universe is, is abundant with life yeah. in, in, the, in, the, in the Doctor universe and of course, on Tom Baker's part, it's it's just a presumption that I am that no, it's the radiation that kickstarts life anyway. No, that's true, but I do think uh, we are supposed to take the, the doctor's word for it and take it at face value and go, yeah, this is exactly what it is. But then, if 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 God is om, omni, omnis, I can't, uh, everywhere and um, and sees and knows all, um, then maybe indirectly this was part of his plan in creating human life yeah. you could argue it on that line but then you know you you could say well you know the, it, the you know the city of death does clearly state well clearly it's all rather happenstance and um god didn't create life on earth it was it was a, an accidental explosion of a Jaggeroth spaceship and it was it's all accidental so there's that interpretation to the story as well i think it's up to you the audience bring in your yeah. you know if you if you want to analyze the story to, to that level you know you can see it um either way i think yeah maybe the artist in the cafe was god <laughs> <gasps> yeah that's yeah. what it is right nailed it yep exactly the artist was God because that triggered the whole thing. Yes. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> Makes sense, yeah. So, the final standoff and Primordial Earth, Scaroth arrives, but um, as he confronts them, Duggan knocks him out and then he goes back to the chateau, Scaroth. Yeah. <laughs> Herman sees him, but yep. of course, he's, he's in his big white suit with a big green mask on. <laughs> Freak and him freaks it freaks out. Like, what the hell? <laughs> Throws something at him. Yeah. And that's the end of him. Mm, yeah, that's the end of him. So, yeah. Oh, so atop the Eiffel Tower, the team's discussing the Mona Lisa. As one of the fake patents survived, so that's the the one that's been kind of returned to the Louvre. So this is a fake, and fell tip is the one that's there. And Duggan asks where they're from. Oh, that's just another point for Big Finish. You, you don't tell Duggan where they're from on their adventures. Oh, yeah, oh, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Duggan asks where they're from, but they they, they avoid the question. And they, they, they kind of part ways. 
And Duggan buys a postcard from the gift shop, and um, the doctor shouts, "Farewell, Duggan." <laughs> bye bye, Duggan. Yeah. I mean, they got to the the bottom of the Eiffel Tower very quickly. Do you think they flew down? Yes. So, listeners' responses this week. I've had an email from Tristan Stops. He said, um, "City of Death, my view," or as I affectionately call it, and he said something that rhymes with city um, as he calls it the city of death <laughs> uh, just go what word rhymes with city it begins with sh doesn't it yes right okay douglas adams sci-fi comedy masterpiece hitchhiker's gate to the galaxy is undoubtedly a masterpiece which can't be topped but unfortunately his brand of humor is not suitable for our best loved time traveler City of Death has a couple of nice touches. The Jaguar spaceship is lovely, but unfortunately on the whole, it's a farce of a story. The Doctor's buffoonery in the story makes you want to throw a police box at the screen, and the silliness of that pepper throughout just makes me glad that we get very little of Douglas Adams in this story terms. As I have said, Hitchhikers equals brilliance, his Doctor Who however equals feces. I know that it is seen as a most popular opinion, but if someone can give me an actual solid reason, other than the superb model work, why anyone should consider this a classic story, I would like to see it. Thank goodness Hitchhikers took off as it did, or we could have got more trash like this. Okay, so not a fan then. No, but that's great. It's it's good to hear so many. That's quite a funny review, actually. Uh, Thanks for sending that in. It's it's good to hear someone have a, a completely different opinion because, as, as he said, um, the city of death is is regarded as a, as a classic Doctor Who um, story. I mean, it, given that we we've got this far, uh, obviously we're in disagreement of of that. Um, you know, you've obviously Rob, you picked it as your favourite Tom Baker story, and through the conversation we've had, I'm clearly a, a fan of it as well. Uh, He's right in picking out that it's got good model work, but that's not just the only reason why um, I like the story. I I like it for its wit, and I, I, I clearly love it for its humour. It genuinely makes me laugh. And I like how it deals with these big ideas. I mean, the, the biggest thing that I take from it is, um, it, is its commentary on art and... You know, it, uh, and what is seen as art and people's different understanding and appreciation of it and where that comes from. So I, I like it for that. Um, I also think, I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't think it's entirely perfect, but I think it gets away with it. Um, and I think it's plotted very well. Um, uh, the cliffhanger to episode two, for example, I think is a very good example of everything that you think everything that you think you know about this story suddenly takes a left turn and it's it's a brilliant idea um i just like it for its idea and its overall execution and it's and its humor and to address the point in terms of douglas adams now i know a lot of people do not like douglas adams as a script editor, as i said before so i think in that sense um what he was saying uh i think most people would would agree with so I think I'm in the minority when I say this, but I actually like Douglas Adams as a script editor. Now, don't get me wrong, I wouldn't have wanted him to, to continue. I think what he did for the show works in terms of a single season. 
sort of in the same sense that I really like Christopher Hamilton Bidmead as a script editor, but I think that worked in terms of just one season. Um, he he brings humour, but as I said before, I don't think he brings it in arbitra arbitrarily. I think that he he, he brings humour into the show for to address a particular philosophical point, which is that humour um, demonstrates. Uh, an understanding of proportion and if you don't have a sense of humour then there's something seriously lacking and I think you see that in all his stories where uh, that he scripts edits that the villains lack that basic understanding and obviously it, uh, it it's not just as something as grandiose as that it, it's um, it brings entertainment value as well um, I like season 17 an awful lot but I know a lot, a lot of people don't and they, they see it as particularly cheap but you know each to their own um, I love the fact that Douglas Adams script edited the, the series uh, and I think he did a very good job of it and I like what he brought to the show um, so it's just a different di different take on it but just, just in response to that. But thank you very much for, for writing in. It is appreciated. Uh, and it, it's nice to get someone else's uh, uh, take on it. Theta Sigma said, For me, as good as this one is, it's overrated, overacted and overplotted. It's a fun romp, but not one I'll get back to on a regular basis, simply because it gets too daft in places. 5 out of 10. Alright, okay. Um... In terms of it being overrated, I have sort of gone. I mean, I still, I've always loved the story, um, but there, ha there has been times when, in terms of this season, season seventeen, I thought is, De um, I think Destiny of the Daleks is is a better story, or even Creature from the Pit, uh, which I have a, a great deal of affection for. But actually, given, uh, but so I have sort of seesawed between. Yes, I, I do like it and it is enjoyable, but yeah, maybe it is a bit overrated. But then I, I've tended to come back to the fact of no, I can I see why it has that reputation for, because I just think it's so damn good. But anyway, so as a conclusion, I think we've both pretty much summed up what we do like about this story. Of course, the the Doctor's wit and the humour. Um, I think it's just a story that sits down and makes me smile. And yeah, I can't say that about a lot of Doctor Who, even though I enjoy it thoroughly. Mm -hmm. um, it just gives you a very good feeling. It's, 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 it's just it's just really good. <laughs> yeah. No. But yes, it, it, it doesn't. It's not. It isn't fundamentally what Doctor Who is all about, especially in in other eras of the show. Um, but in that moment in time, it was it was perfect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, and I think another thing as well, which because uh, the story does deal with this element of time, and there is that sort of complexity. And you know, when you when you have later on, you know, Stephen Moffat plays around with that with an awful lot. But I think he needlessly complicates. I mean, the playing of time can be a very complicated thing. But it's like what I said. I think it requires real skill if you can get these complex ideas and present them actually in a very easily understandable, digestible way. Um, you know, in that res you know, in that respect, you know, I would much rather watch um, this story than I know a lot of people will probably disagree with me on this one for the comparison I'm going to make. 
I would much rather watch City of Death because I think how Douglas Adams deals with the complex ideas, but focusing entirely on time, I think he does it much more intelligently and writes it much more deftly than anything Christopher Nolan has done. So you think um, another another approach may have needlessly complicated this story? Yes. I mean, imagine... Because I think it's at the heart of it, right, you've got this good idea, I think. Um, but there are many different ways in which you can present that. It, so I think this is an idea that you could see Stephen Moffat getting his teeth into. Imagine, you know, and, and already you th- you're thinking of ways of... You'd already, already I'm see- getting a headache. Yeah, you're... <laughs> yeah. Don't get me wrong, I like, you know, um, an awful lot of what Stephen Moffat did, and he has written some very good stories. But yeah, um, yeah, imagine if Stephen... Yeah, you're. I'm with you on that one. I'm already getting a headache um, thinking about, oh, jeez, if this was a Stephen Moffat story. I, I can't I can't even begin to... Oh, I don't want to think about it. Um, so yeah, Douglas Adams uh, was very good at getting these big... And you see that in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with these big ideas that he deals with. And yet he puts them in a very uh, concise, enjoyable, humorous, witty, engaging way. And it's not patronising. No. That's good writing. That's talent. That's skill. Um, <laughs> I think we're clearly big, big fans. Of it. Yeah, and you're right. It is one of those rare Doctor Who stories you can sit down and you, you just you just relish in it and it puts a big smile on your face. And even though we you know we love Doctor Who and there are many stories that we enjoy, there's not that many of them that actually do that. No. So I'm going to be very brave and... Well, I did pick it as my favourite, so that kind of justifies it. So I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and give it a 10 out of 10. I would mark it down for the, for the, for the dodgy lighting in the cellar, <laughs> if anything. But no, I'll, I'll go for a 10. No, that, that's fine. Yeah, As we said before, the, the story isn't, in terms of how it's presented in a couple of moments, that you've got that it's not entirely perfect. And you could even say that the actual set of Primordial Earth doesn't entirely convince. I don't know, it, it works. It works. I, it, mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, you could it's, go well. It's, um, it's, even if it's not convincing, mm-hmm. um, it still is more or less seamless for what it is yes you know no i totally agree with that um but you know when you compare it to other things in the story maybe it doesn't quite hold up but i do think it's a good i do think it's a good design and um you know i haven't got a problem with it but i think that you know i if someone would what i'm basically saying is if someone were to mention that as a thing that well i don't think the story works because of that i was like i don't mind it but i can see where you're coming from and then one or two other things but you know what i don't i I can forgive the story for those things because I said at the heart of it I think I love the cast I love their performance of it I know that one of the people who provided feedback said that they thought it was a bit over the top I think it's pitched perfectly uh, but each to their own I give it 10 out of 10 as well um, oh brilliant I love this okay. I genuinely love the story it's uh, yeah it's great I can, you know, it's it's one of those Doctor Who stories. I will. It doesn't matter how I'm feeling. I will always be in the mood to watch it. It's uh, it's witty. It's humorous. It puts a smile on your face. It's just a great story. Uh, and yeah, we've you know go you know we've had a laugh along the way about maybe one or two certain things, but really in the grand scheme of things, I cannot fault it. I love it. 
yeah, same here. So please get in touch next week. Um, Liam, would you like to announce what we will be talking about next week on the podcast? Yes, everyone. So uh, obviously it's going to be my favourite Tom Baker story. And that... City of Death? <laughs> it's City of Death. We're going to be talking about it all over again. No, uh, in all seriousness, of course, it, of course it's not, although I love City of Death. No, uh, my favourite Tom Baker story is Underworld. The... No, it's not. It's... <laughs> I'm going to keep on doing this. I know it's not that funny, but uh, every time I've got to pick a dog awful story and pretend it's my favourite. The Joker wear thing. No, um, my favourite Tom Baker story, uh, as I said, it's a. Um, Philip Hinchcliffe produced one, uh, and it's The Seeds of Doom. Ah, early days. Early days, yeah. Well, I look forward to that. Um, is that a four potter by any chance, or is it longer? No, I'm afraid it's it's, it's a oh. six. Uh, yeah, I'm afraid it's <laughs> a bloody six potter. We should be picking our favourite two to four potters here. <laughs> yeah, I think we should have. It would have made uh, you know, would have made things a lot easier. Oh, bring on the new era. We just have to review a single episode. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Yes, I'm afraid uh, we're like not... a holiday. Ah, but look at it this way, Rob. This will be our la- unless you pick. Unless one of us picks The Trial of a Time Lord as our favourite Colin Baker story. <laughs> 14 fantastic episodes to, to review. This will be the last six part of that we review. Uh, in terms of our favourite uh, Doctor. If we did pick um, Trial of a Time Lord, mm. would we also have to review and watch the Terror of the Vervide special, special Edition? Of course we would. Yeah. Why wouldn't Why wouldn't we? So it'll be an eighteen-episode review of the trial of a time. So you review, you review it in the context of the trial, and then you, you review it as if taking place after it in that standalone version that they did. Yeah, yeah. So it's a sensible thing, Rob. Of course you would do that. Yeah, of course. Why exclude it? Okay. <laughs> Please get in touch. Um, visit cloisterbellpodcast.com for more, more information, and if you're on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating. We'd love to know what you think. Yes, but only if it's good ratings, in which case don't bother. If it's bad, sorry, no, no. If it's good reviews, bother. If not, then don't. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, so long. Yep, bye everyone. Thank you.